God's word. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Saphon the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bring the king word, saying, Your your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work to oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I sent to you a document yesterday concerning the background of King Josiah and the Reformation that he instituted. In his day, Israel had forgotten the Word of God for about a hundred years. Just think about that for a moment. No Bible, no Word of God, just forgotten. Just as there was, we read about uh, in Genesis or in Exodus, a new king in Egypt who had forgotten who Joseph was. Joseph had been primary leader in worship, the father of Pharaoh. But pretty quickly he was forgotten. And after Joshua's death, we read in Judges 2, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So in a generation... The Lord can be forgotten. But the good news is that in a generation, he can be remembered. True Reformation always begins with a return to the Word of God. We read in 2 Kings 22.2, Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all, and walked in all the ways of his father David, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. We are in desperate need of doing the same. We are in need of such a reformation in our day. Since sin is an ancient thing, this need for reformation is an ancient thing as well. And so... God, in his great mercy and grace, brought forth a plan of redemption to redeem us after the fall of man. The story of the church in both the Old and the New Testament and throughout Christian history has been a story of reformation. Reformation of individuals, reformation in the church, and even reformation in the world. Moreover, we sit here today as incontrovertible proof that ideas have consequences. Today we mark that moment in history, 505 years ago, when a movement that would come to be known as the Protestant Reformation was launched. 
It seemed to begin unexpectedly and powerfully, but the Spirit of God had already been working in many places, setting the stage, setting the table, if you will, for this moment. And as a result, the world has never been the same place. The Reformation would take many forms over the years. It certainly was not monolithic. It was multifaceted. The Reformation was also a controversy that led to a major division in the church. And as such, the two sides became more and more polarized, and many were even demonized, and positions were absolutized. And eventually, if it was Catholic, it was bad. And if it was Reformed, it was good, and vice versa. This oversimplification makes it much easier to hate the other side and to even justify imprisoning and killing the other side. Like our own civil war, which is still being played out, the politics of the Protestant Reformation are still with us. Professor John Murray wrote this, The nailing of Luther's 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg on October the 31st 1517, was the event that more than any other event marks the inception of the movement called the Protestant Reformation. It is well that we should celebrate that event. Celebration can be devoid of any significant appreciation of what was involved in the movement. We can become partisan idolaters For celebration may be little more than an expression of loyalty to certain traditions. If we are to honor God, our remembrance must proceed from profound gratitude to him for the light that shone in the midst of darkness and for the emancipation that occurred when the Reformers were cut loose from the shackles of superstition and idolatry. So while we must guard against that temptation to become partisan idolaters, we must also not fail to value our heritage and to express our gratitude to God, to the Reformers and for the Reformers, and for that matter, all faithful Christians who have gone before us. We will do this again here on our All Saints service this Wednesday night when we remember and honor many of those who have gone before us in faithfulness. These Christians labored, and we have benefited from those labors, and we now continue in them. Now, being Reformed isn't just another flavor of Christianity in the smorgasbord of Christendom. Our heritage must not only be cherished, it must also be propagated. The Reformation was a rediscovery of the revealed counsel of God, a returning to the Word of God just as it was in the days of Josiah. And all Protestant churches share this heritage, but not all of them appreciate and embrace it. But this was an important, critical moment, and still is. It was a light that arose in the darkness. And so what is the heritage that the Protestant Reformation has left to us? The issue at stake was not obscure and it was not irrelevant it was it the uh it was the issue that was and is at the very heart of the relationship between man and god 
The theological issue is justification. That's at the heart of the Reformation. The basic religious question that was and still is, was and still is, how can a man become right with God? That's the fundamental question. This question presupposes that man is not right with God, that he's wrong with God. This was Luther's burning question, and he found the answer in Paul's epistles to the Romans and Galatians that we are justified by faith alone through grace alone. Romans 3.24, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're made right with God. Luther wrote this, but grace is so great that it amazes a human creature and is very difficult to be believed. Insomuch that faith gives the honor to God, and he can and will perform what he promised, namely to make sinners righteous, though it is an exceedingly hard matter to believe that God is merciful unto us for the sake of Christ. Calvin wrote in a letter to Francis I, Nothing is more consistent with faith than to acknowledge ourselves naked of all virtue, that we may be clothed by God, empty of all good, that we may be filled by him, lame, that we may be guided, weak, that we may be supported by him, to divest ourselves of all ground of glorying, that he alone may be eminently glorious, and that we may glory in him. So remembrance is important if we're not to lose our way. Forgetfulness is one of the great sins that God warns against in the Bible. And true doctrine is essential to right living. If we forget it, we're, not going, we're going to go astray. And so we celebrate Reformation Sunday. I think today's sermon addresses what our nation needs as well. Perhaps you too could use a little reformation in your family or in your life. And so I call on you now to remember, to reflect, to consider, and to advance. We hear much about things like Social Security reform, welfare reform, immigration reform, tax reform, or campaign finance reform. Why do these things need to be reformed? Well, because they've been corrupted from their original intent, and I will not take the time to comment at this time on whether their original intent was good or not. Most of us have faced this question when it comes to the church. What is it? What is reformed? Well, the question may be born out of curiosity or out of ignorance and occasionally out of hostility, but the answer is this. To be reformed is to stand with those who oppose the corruption of the church and the gospel and who sought ecclesiastical and theological and social reform which was in accord with the Bible, a recovery of the word of God, just like King Josiah in his day. 505 years ago, Martin Luther stood up to the corruption of the church of Rome, and he was not alone. 
This was far more than the widespread personal immorality of the clergy. There was plenty of that then, and there's plenty of that now. This was the theological corruption, though, of the gospel itself that led to the damnable abuse of people by way of indulgences, extortion, and other things. And by the way, the Protestant church is certainly not without its own various serious corruptions as well. In Luther's day, the tyranny of superstition was used to dominate and manipulate people. As a result, the entire culture was defiled. In our own day, these and other means are used to dominate and manipulate people, and we should remember that the culture is always a reflection of the state of the church. We're the lighthouse. We're the proclaimer of the truth. We're the pillar and the ground of the truth. And if that's corrupt, if that loses its way, if that light goes out, then the whole culture is in desperate trouble. Again, Professor John Murray wrote, In these days that blur the lines of distinction between truth and error, it is well to keep before our minds the great grace bestowed upon the church and the world in the Reformation. We are so far removed from those centuries that we are too ready to underestimate and to even forget the surpassing privilege that is ours in the Reformation heritage. We need but think of the superstition that encompassed the church when Luther nailed his theses to the church door in Wittenberg in order to catch some vision of the darkness that then began to be dispelled and of the glory that had begun to appear on the horizon. And we also need to think of what would have been our situation today if God, in just and holy judgment, had withheld his grace and allowed this superstition with its entail of implications to continue and develop the system of iniquity that it represented. Think of what our situation would be without the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century provides a great demonstration of personal, familial, ecclesiastical, and social reform. We look to this period of history and we we witness the dramatic results of God's reforming work. We see first the individual lives of men and women and then families and churches and ultimately we begin to see the reformation of society. The Reformation of the 16th century Europe wasn't unique. It represents the character of all true reformations. In it, we find the genuine work of God. In it, we see the pattern for future reformations. And the Bible records many of these. Personal reformations of Abraham, of David, of Paul, and many more. Social reformations of Israel and Nineveh. The day of Pentecost began a great reformation Ecclesiastical reformations, for example, with Nehemiah or Jesus at the temple. Because reformation is central to the Bible and central to the gospel. The entire history of man is a story of sin and rebellion against God, and therefore man needs reformation or reformation. Man was formed in the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Man's sinfulness caused him to become deformed, broken, twisted. As a result, sinful men must be reformed by the power of the work of God. 
Our own moment on the stage of history likewise stands in need, need of the genuine work of reformation. God's word has been set aside, has been replaced by the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, a mix of rationalism, mysticism, and postmodernism. And without reformation, we are doomed. I want us to look at each of these three things that I've mentioned. First, the formation of man. God created the world by the power of his word. He spoke the world into existence. He defined everything. He gave everything a place and a purpose. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. To the formless void, God spoke his word, and the universe was born and obeyed his every command. In the beginning, we read in John 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The world rejects that, both of these. But if that's true, then everything hinges on this. Everything. The entire creation owes its existence to the Word of God. All creatures are subject to the authority of the Word. Perfect harmony is the result of a creation that is obedient to the Word of God. And God saw that all that He made was, uh, uh, all that He made, and behold, it was very good. Then man was created in the image of God. He formed him from the dust of the earth. He created man after his own image to be a reflection of himself. Dominion over the creation. He was given the task of raising a family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more images of God. He was given the task of ruling the earth and exercising dominion over the creatures. He was given God's word to live by. His tasks were defined by God, work and family. His limitations were defined by the word of God. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. This was paradise. Personal. Newly formed man walked with God. He knew the joys and blessings of life. His family, husband and wife were one. The expectation of generational blessings Social, all the earth bowed to Adam's rule, and the earth yielded its fruit willingly. But then, a challenge to the authority, a challenge to the word of God. Hath God said, the serpent asked. This is always the beginning of trouble. A new authority one that will sit in the judgment of the word of the Creator and will now determine good from evil. This is the claim by the creature to know better than God. The issue of authority is at the heart of every sin. Who's to say? Who's in charge? No one is going to tell me what to do. Not even God. 
This is why men continue to rebel against God and all legitimate authority. It is at the heart of every so-called progressive social movement. God is not going to tell us how to live. We will define ourselves. We will define our sexuality. We will define everything we do. And we will even define what a person is. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3 Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, what are they, got this, all the leadership of the world is looking to heaven and saying to the anointed, to Jesus, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. We don't want God telling us what to do. We will be our own God. Isaiah 5, 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And so the creature became his own God, determining good and evil for himself. The puny creature decides to bring God's word before his own bar and force it to stand trial And in so doing, man fell either into the ditch of rationalism or the ditch of mysticism and ultimately into the despair of our own day, our own day's dead end of postmodernism. This is a perversion and causes the hideous deformation of the creature. Now God must answer to the creature. He must submit to the authority and judgment of men. And instead of worshiping God, they exchanged the truth for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature instead. Professing to be wise became fools. Personal turmoil. Filled with fear. Family strife. National and racial uh, uh, hatred. Social chaos. Ecclesiastical corruption. And what the Bible calls covenant curses. Deformed man devises many ways to try and solve the mess that he's in. And so man became so deformed that he either sought to make God in his own image or else he suppressed the truth about God. As Romans 1 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, but became futile in their speculation and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkness. Humanism takes many forms and devises many schemes. Man's problems are environmental, they're educational, or our latest hope, they're genetic. Believe in science. We've seen what that'll give us. Or as Bob Dylan put it, I don't put my faith in nobody, not even a scientist. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This has been the story of man ever since the fall. The resounding theme of deformed man is we can do it ourselves. We can solve our own problems. We have authority. We have power to save ourselves. And we will not have this man to rule over us. This deformation of man is why the work of reformation is so essential. And unless God moves to reform deformed men personally as well as in his family and society, all is lost. Until God's word rules in your heart, in a person's heart, 
and rules their family and society, all is lost. And that leads us then to the Reformation of man. The 16th century Protestant Reformation was born in the midst of great corruption and deformation and darkness. The social institutions were corrupt, ecclesiastical and political. A combination of theological rationalism and mysticism was present. A superstitious theology of works and indulgences dominated the church. In other words, more self-salvation. But the work of God's reformation had this small beginning. And this is where the hope comes in. Now, history is never simple. It's always complicated. I had a professor in a history professor in college, that was his mantra, nothing is simple. I drew a picture one time of a cow jumping over the moon. It was a crescent moon, but the cow got hung in the middle. And it said, cow jumped over the moon, nothing is simple. Something always gets in the way. God was at work doing many things before Luther showed up. Luther didn't necessarily know about all that. Just as God is doing things right now that we don't know about. They're not reporting this in the news. They could care less. They want to ignore this. They want to make you and the church and the work of God irrelevant. But that doesn't stop it. It is a leaven that fills the earth. It is going, the kingdom is advancing. It's been advancing. And God is at work all over the place in ways we can't imagine. He did it yesterday and last week and the month before that, and we should take great heart in that. God is still on his throne. Nevertheless, there are moments and events in history that punctuate his work and make that work more manifest. One of the places where God's work of reformation began was in the unsettled heart of this obscure monk named Martin Luther. Luther's concerns were primarily personal, where concerns should begin. He struggled with the corruption of his own heart. He sought to apply the remedies that he knew about that had been devised by men. And by his own strength, this poor, deformed man tried desperately to reform himself. That is, to bring himself into a position of being right with God. He said this, I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. The more he tried, the more he tried these remedies, the worse he perceived his condition to be because he was helpless and hopeless. He wrote this, In devil's dungeon chained I lay, the pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life, and sin had made me crazy. During the winter of 1510-1511, he went to Rome, a city then filled with enthusiasm for the Renaissance, but pretty indifferent to religion. And Luther was appalled at the unbelief and the immorality he saw, and upon his return home he said this, Some people took money to Rome and brought back indulgences, I, like a fool, carried onions there and brought back garlic. As things seemed dark and hopeless, the Word of God took hold of him and did its reforming work in in the life of this obscure sinner. By faith, Luther found salvation 
from his moral deformity by submitting to the word of God rather than the false promises and schemes of men. He wrote this, God works by contraries so that man feels himself to be lost in the very moment when he is on the point of being saved. When God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would make alive, he first must kill. God's favor is so communicated in the form of wrath that it seems farthest when it is at hand. Man must first cry out that there is no health in him. And when a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. Peace comes in the word of Christ through faith. The real work of reformation begins when a man bows his heart to the authority of God's word. We read of King Josiah's reformation as we did this morning in 2 Kings. In effect, we say, not my will, but your will be done. When we come to agree with what God says about us and what he says about himself, when we confess that he has been right all along and that indeed man lives not by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, then and only then can reformation come. Reformation, real reformation, comes one person at a time. A rebellious, deformed creature is reformed into a new creature. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. His thoughts become your thoughts by way of reformed thinking, renewed in the spirit of your mind. His ways become your ways because you've taken off the old deformed man and put on the new reformed man, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness. God was ready to use this single reformed sinner to advance reformation in the world. Luther now wanted to discuss the corruption of his day and the teaching of the word of God with a few of his colleagues where he worked. Remember, many of these issues were not new questions, so Luther was surprised by the reaction that he received. Little did he know how God was about to use him any more than the faithful shepherd boy David knew that God was about to anoint him to be the king and shepherd of Israel. He announced a disputation on indulgences by posting 95 theses on the door at the University of Wittenberg that he was willing to debate. These were both academic and unexciting in tone. Routine faithfulness is often unexciting. But God used this unexpected challenge to send a wake-up call to the religious establishment. Within two weeks, every religious center stirred with agitation. This was their version, I guess, of a blog post. It brought the reactions out. Roland Baton, famous biographer of Luther, said, Luther was like a man climbing in the darkness of a winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral, and in the blackness he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope, and he was startled to hear the clanging of a bell. We must not ever be discouraged by the circumstances around us. 
Paul instructed Timothy concerning the cultural ups and downs of his own day, preach the, wor- preach the word, be instant, be ready, in season, out of season. Reformation is God's work carried on as reformed individuals are faithful to proclaim his powerful word. Luther recognized that those who came to truly benefit from this reforming work that God did, uh, they did so not because of him, but because of God's word. Here's what he said. They believe not for man's sake, but for the sake of the word itself. There are many who believe on my account. But the only true believers are those who would continue to believe even if they heard, which God forbid, that I had denied the faith or fallen away from it. For they do not believe on Luther, but on Christ himself. The word has them, and they have the word. As for Luther, they care not whether he is a knave or a saint. I do not preach him, but Christ. Reformation never stops with a single man. It first extends to, it then extends to his family and then to the world around him. Once the authority of God's word is established in a person's life, then they are prepared to take on the world's challenges and threats. This reformation, which denies self and bows to the word of God, brings about a whole new view of the world. It gives a reformed view of authority and knowledge along with a clear perception of God's saving work with man and man's place in the kingdom. This Reformation in Europe, like all true Reformations, brought with it lasting social, political, and economic changes as well. Because the borders of God's kingdom expand each time a deformed sinner is reformed by the word of God. Such radical Reformation can't be contained. Our true salvation won't come from political leaders down to the culture. Rather, cultural reforms begin in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls as the church faithfully proclaims the word of God. Under God's word, sinful men and a sinful world can know the joy of real reformation. Once the liberty of reformation has been known, once the truth has set us free, there's never any going back. Luther's personal reformation had rocked the world, and many wished to undo the damage Outlawed by the Emperor Charles V and brought before the Council or the Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther was called upon to recant his views. And so may we all learn from this now famous reply what it is to submit to the authority of God's word in the face of all dangers. Most of you have heard this many times, but we need to hear it again. He responded, Your imperial majesty and your lordship demands a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture or by by manifest reasoning, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the popes or the councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed and my conscience is taken captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me.
Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we are, we, as we contemplate your gifts to the church, we stand in awe of those whom you have allowed to lead the church militant. As we set aside time to recall how you have worked in the past, we are thankful that through the dedicated and zealous efforts of your servants, you have preserved to us the wonderful gospel and its truth and purity. May the Holy Spirit not only bring to us the joy and peace of your love in our Lord Jesus Christ, but may he also kindle in us the unquenchable, unquenchable desire to share that love with others. May we never yield on one point of doctrine, lest we lose our Reformed heritage, our faith in Jesus, and have nothing to pass on to those who may follow us. We ask this in the name of Christ crucified and risen, the Savior of the world, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God throughout all eternity. Amen. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage, wisdom, and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church and send laborers into your harvest. And give your word free course to bring reformation and the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. What a heritage you have given to your church. We have the gospel and all of its truth. Keep us in this truth and make us instruments for its preservation for generations to come. Arm us with the weapons of the gospel to defend the holy ground our fathers contended for. Stamp out the spirit of compromise and keep us from yielding even the least particle of faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Be our mighty fortress to protect us from the devil. May we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we, as the true church, manifest your love. Bless us now and bless our rest and our feast. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.